Episode 44 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World Catherine Lucas from Farmhouse Culture is today's guest. Catherine is a master crowd maker. Check out her products at farmhouseculture.com A correction to make in this episode. Brian says he kept kimchi at 55 degrees for 6 months. He meant to say 65 degrees on average. There are several ways to support this show. Here are two. Go to askbrian.com slash audible for a free audiobook if you qualify. If you do, Audible will pay me $15. The second ad is for the Total Transformation Program. If you have a defiant or oppositional teenager in your care, please go to needhelpparenting.com for details. You can regain control of your life. Don't forget to visit farmhouseculture.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Hi there. Hey, Catherine. Oh my gosh, we did it. Hey, I accidentally... I just... (laughs) I was I just called you on accident. <laughs> really? Yeah. I okay, cool. <clears throat> and I, I saw an Ask Brian. Um I yeah. sent a request to Ask Brian. Um Brian at Ask Brian. Oh yeah. dear. Oh, I spelled your name wrong. I've asked another Ask Brian to be my friend. <laughs> oh guy. Let's see what comes of that. All right. I hope he's as cool as I am. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> that won't take much. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, you sound great. Okay, all right. Um, okay, so I think I, I think I'm technically together here now. Cool. So you've been traveling a bit, I see. I have, I have. I was in uh, Washington D.C. last week for the International Kimchi Conference, which was really, really cool. That is crazy. I. A international kimchi conference. I got to hear about this. Yeah, normally it's it's held in Guangzhou, which is not that far from Seoul, and this is the first time ever that it's been held in the United States. And uh, they held it in Washington D.C. through the World Kimchi Cultural Festival that was happening at the same time in D.C. And you know the. Two top kimchi master chefs in Korea were there, um, and I got my picture taken with them, and they were women. Oh, yeah. That's the interesting thing about kimchi in Korea is that it's really a woman's world where sauerkraut making in the rest of Europe and the United States, I don't know, we kind of think of it as a guy thing. You know, yeah, you, see the, yeah. you see the guys on the, on the you know, shredding the big that they've got that huge sort of seesaw shredder over a barrel. Absolutely. Two men sitting and doing that. Or if you go to Gus's Pickles in Manhattan, you know, you got those sort of, you know, crusty old guys selling you kraut and pickles. And um, so it was kind of unexpected to see that it was really women who traditionally hand down and, um, the, the, the traditions. And I, I met a, a woman who um, is the CEO of the largest kimchi or second largest kimchi com- company in Korea. So it was really fascinating. Yeah, that is super cool. And I, um, I guess that from the Korean angle, they're all doing it the, uh, the correct lacto-fermented way. 
They are, and that was a sort of an interesting part of the the uh, conference. The name of the conference was Kimchi from the East Meets Pickles from the West. And so the Pickle Packers Association of the United States uh, and also Europe helped organize this meeting. And there's a friendship, a great friendship between these organizations uh, because a lot of researchers are uh, and scientists who are involved in the quality assurance of these products uh, help each other. And in Germany, for instance, in, in Korea and the United States. And so the American presentations about the pickle industry and where it is right now were sort of business-focused and mm-hmm. talked about all the different things that go in the pickles, including um, additives mm-hmm. and coloring agents sure. and things to prevent the pickles from turning colors underneath grocery store lights. And the Korean presentations used words like it's a sharing and caring culture and this food epitomizes that. Uh, People come out together in November in the streets and make it together. Um, It's full of probiotic. It's one of the top healthiest foods you can eat. They cited all kinds of magazine articles. And, uh, you know, lay people were also invited to participate in this this conference. And so there were a lot of Americans there uh, who were interested in probiotics and, and they were asking the pickle industry questions about, you know, why they pasteurize and if their pickles, you know, were probiotic. And of course it was, you know, yes, we do pasteurize. Mm -hmm. No, there is no probiotic bacteria left. Mm -hmm. And of course, the kimchi, they pride themselves on that and they were thrilled to be able to say, yes, that's what, you know, that's one of the best things about this wonderful food. And, and uh, so, yeah, they absolutely are, are very interested in that. And the American and European cultures have industrialized the product to make it easier to move around. And to deal with the fact that these cold climates only get one or two max crops of cabbage a year. Mm-hmm. So how are they going to make it shelf-stable mm-hmm. easily for a large consumer base? And in Korea, they have found ways to make sure that they've got vegetables uh, year-round. Mm-hmm. And they've innovated with their packaging in order to make it easier to move around uh, grocery shelves you know they've got really interesting packaging to deal with the fact that raw raw live foods because they're active because they're const- they're still digesting sugars in the foods because they're still off gassing they're mm-hmm. really tricky you know jars will leak on the grocery store shelf and that sort of thing so pasteurize it all those problems go away uh, right. where yeah the yeah, uh, and, and, and making an industrial food has its yeah, it solves some problems and creates a host of others. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so you know, as we as we all know, um, you know, this is one of those really wonderful traditional foods that tastes so much better in its natural state, and of course, it's healthier as well. So some foods are okay, you know, industrialized. You don't like cheese. I I prefer raw cheese, but you know. You can still you eat a good cheddar cheese that's been pasteurized. It's still really, really good. But kraut is different, I think. You know, when you cook kraut at a high temperature and when you take some of its aliveness away, it just isn't the same. Yeah, the same experience, either you know, culinarily or nutritionally. And you know, there's a whole there's a whole discussion around that too uh, in in both kimchi and the sauerkraut world, which I find kind of fascinating. Um, I don't know if you want to jump ahead to this or not, but. There is this idea that what if we could culture 
sauerkraut uh, and, and kimchi, you know, isolate what we want in there and then culture each batch. And it's interesting, the microbiologists who are working in this field feel strongly that vegetables should not be cultured, that the lactic acid bacteria that come in from the fields on the cabbage um, is it's bringing its own ecosystem in with us when it, if, excuse me, mm-hmm. in it, fungus, bacteria, uh, other bacteria that might want to putrefy the cabbage and, and yeast. So all these competing organisms. And when you salt cabbage, you are selecting in a way for this lactic acid bacteria that's salt tolerant. You're setting up the stage for that to be successful and for these other um, microorganisms to, to fade away, to die. And what's happening is if you were to select for a, a, a culture, then the bacteria doesn't have a chance to constantly be evolving to get stronger and smarter than that particular family of fungi, fungi and bacteria that it came in from the fields with. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. It's right in line with my thinking about everything, culture as a whole even. And this is something, <laughs> something similar I talked to about Sandor Katz about as well, this idea of the heirloom cultures. So say if you are going to air, uh, culture something, say dairy, you have your choice of trying a starter with a store-bought commercial industrial yogurt or an heirloom culture. And just to do that for yourself and see the difference and see how after a few generations, the um, manufactured culture won't replicate. It, it, it dies out after two or three generations. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to see. Yeah, and so there are all these sort of, you know, well-intended microbiologists who are convinced that they're going to come up with a culture that can morph with everything. And and the general philosophy still is, even in the industrial world, nope, we're not going to do that. The big sauerkraut companies generally don't culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find that reassuring somehow. But that it is, is fascinating. Yeah, that's good. I was with Sandor this past weekend um, at the Farm to Fermentation Festival in Petaluma, California. Did you hear about that, Brian? Yeah, I did. I didn't get a chance to look into it too much, though. It was pretty cool. It's the third year um, that uh, it's taken place, and there seems to be a lot of interest in that area. Petaluma is just north of San Francisco, about an hour, and uh, it's really kind of become known as a dairy area. We've got a, really, a lot of really cool cheesemakers up there, and... Uh, there's an increasing interest in fermented vegetables as well. So there are all kinds of really neat fermented food companies there. And Sandor came and um, was a keynote speaker. And uh, he's just, you know, we're so lucky to have him uh, as as our spokesperson for this movement. Absolutely. Let me ask you about that farm to fermentation festival. Was this Is this the same as the one that was in uh, Sebastopol last year? Yeah, yeah. yeah the is free- it the same? The Freestone Farm to Fermentation Festival, and it has a different venue and a different organizer, but basically, okay. but basically the same vendors. And uh, yeah, yeah. So it was yeah, same thing. Did you happen to check that one out last year? No, I. It's unfortunate. I moved to Ohio. I used to live right there. I lived uh, just a few miles south of San Francisco for a few years, and then. I moved to Ohio. (laughs) So (laughs) about the time that festival got going, I was leaving town. So Um, bummer. Bad timing. Um, What's the kraut tradition like in Ohio? It's pretty, there's a pretty strong kraut ethic there, isn't there? Um, Well, if there's any of them alive, they're all, they're all 
they're all dead. <laughs> the old people are gone. Um, really? Fortunately, so- I had a, my grandfather is uh, the older community. They they did pass along a lot, you know. So I have my uncles and my mom, and they all learned the old way. And when I came back with my, all my new stuff, we, it kind of reinvigorated everyone. And now everyone's fermenting just about everything over here now. Really? In my family, yeah. And how about generally speaking in that area? Is there a trend? Toward- well, <laughs> it's um, it's a slow start at best. Um, I've done a few workshops, and you know, one or two people will show up. Although I did have really good luck in Oberlin at Oberlin College. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that I I filled the house on that one, <laughs> but um, I happen to have a good promoter for that event, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting how it's. You know, it started on the coasts, as a lot of food trends do, and it's moving inward. And the, and the, the neat thing is we have such a strong kraut tradition in this country, um, especially in the Midwest. And so, you know, we do we do nine farmers markets a week, and we have a couple of them fairly mainstream customers. You know, they're not the you know they're not the typical ferment fermented foods head that we we see at yeah. a lot of our events. And um, when they taste real kraut. Uh, they just they go crazy. It's just a matter of getting them comfortable with the fact that it costs more. You know, instead of a dollar a can, okay, it's not that cheap, but it's like instead of three dollars, oh, it's, it's close. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, I know. They got to pay you know um, six or seven dollars, mm-hmm. and if they're if they're of the mind that that's worth it, and they understand um, the value of it, then they are they're solid customers because they've been eating kraut since they were kids. Yep. And when they taste the the real version of it or the authentic traditional version of it uh they just um they become really sort of avid fans um that's I think exciting we, that's awesome you know i think we even have some very conservative republican types as customers whoa probably are not <laughs> shows, so i can say that <laughs> it's funny it was about the time i discovered fermentation that um i i quit being a republican so i think it's the bacteria <laughs> speaking some truth turn in some other you know uh, d- democratic bacteria on or something along those oh, yeah, lines. Yeah, or neither. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I did a, a presentation for a 4-H group of little kids about the safety of fermented foods. And there was parents in the room, and, you know, and I asked people to name a ferment or a cultured food, and no one could. And I finished the whole uh, presentation, and I didn't get much reaction, And but I brought a bunch of um, fermented foods for people to try. And the guy tried a bite. He just tried a pickle. And he's like, "You, I swear, it was like I saw him go back in time before my eyes. All of a sudden, he just went, oh, yeah, we used to make these when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. was like, oh, my God, I totally remember. And, like, for two minutes, he was just like, I thought, was, you know, he was going to explode with excitement. Yeah, yeah, we've had similar experiences at our at our booth. That's really exciting, and so at least there's this sort of collective cultural memory for many Americans. And so I have hope that that uh, you know this revival will extend beyond sort of uh, liberal food circles. Yeah, right. The ultra hippie vegan farmers market, you know, little quaint little markets and things, but to a, a larger audience, yeah. it, it's very good. I know, you know, in many circles, it's. It, it's it's very probiotic, you know. The, these cultured foods are are hugely popular. Say in the paleo, Weston A. Price, um, any very strong real food movement 
has a, right. a, a good basis with um, cultured foods. Right, right. So let's talk about your company and how this started. Oi. Well, Oi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always try, I'm, I'm always working on a condensed okay. answer, and there is no condensed answer, I guess. Um, uh, you know, it's, I've been in the uh, restaurant business and cooking um, since my, er, uh, excuse me, mid-20s, and I owned a restaurant in Germany, uh, in Stuttgart, and learned how to cook there, an Alsatian um, chef taught me uh, the basics and I tasted real kraut there for the first time and it was such a pleasure um, I use it quite a bit in my restaurant and when I came home I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with myself in 1998 so I I um, well, I did a bunch of different things but I did attend a natural foods culinary uh, course here in a six month I think it was a seven month program here in Santa Cruz and I also went back and finished my degree. I, I had my my wonderful son Shane when I was twenty, so I was quite young. He was finishing up high school, and it was like time for me to go back to school and finish my degree. And so I I went to a lefty liberal arts college that allowed me to write a um, a thesis for my bachelor's thesis, and uh, and I wrote it on pre corporate food traditions. And as I was really studying, you know, natural foods, it kept coming to me that traditional foods were the area that felt the most interesting because they were backed up by great grandma's words, and they weren't some sort of newfangled idea about how to how to eat. And th th so I started really delving into traditional foods around the world, and I traveled quite a bit um, in Asia, and uh, in South America and Europe. And study traditional foods. Um, was really fortunate that I was able to travel during that time, and I was ready to really start something. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a restaurant. I just wasn't sure. And in the meantime, I had crocks and crocks of stuff fermenting on my counter. I'd gotten so turned on by by fermented foods um, in this natural culinary course that I took, because as a as a cook, it's so it's so wonderful. It's an extra challenge in a way to have to put ingredients into a container. And then imagine what they're going to taste like with the addition of sour. Mm -hmm. I love that challenge. It was it was really exciting. And so I was fermenting all kinds of things. And it started dawning on me that maybe the little local farmer's market might be interested in some of my products. And I approached uh, some friends who had a CSA. And they said, yeah, let's, let's start selling them in our CSA. And all of a sudden, I had a business started. And, and then I got really brave. And submitted my smoked jalapeno uh, kraut. Have you tried our smoked jalapeno kraut? No, I haven't tried your product. It, um, uh, I submitted it to Slow Food Nation in June of 2008. And this was a huge event. Um, they, they, they let me in to the event. Even though they knew I was really small, um, they liked the kraut so much. And there was a farmer's market at the Slow Food Nation um, where you only got to bring one product. It was modeled after a, a farmer's market in Italy. Uh, and, and so if you were a farmer, you just got to bring your, you know, your very best plum or your uh -huh. very best tomato. And it was nice. You know, it made it easier for mm, the customer to discern because there were 63 stalls. Hundreds of people applied to get into this event. So our smoked jalapeno was one of the products. And we handed out in three days eight thousand samples and sold about a thousand pounds of kraut. Whoa. We I brought I brought all the kraut that I thought <laughs> I would need. I'd made all this kraut for the season. Right. I didn't think I was going to be making kraut again. I thought, well, let me bring it just in case. I ran out on Sunday. 
I was shocked. And I thought, you know, this I'm on to something. The, the food editor for the San Francisco Chronicle said it was the best thing she ate there the entire mm-hmm. weekend. So people were kind of turned on by this idea of this hybrid sauerkraut kimchi that I'd made with a smoked jalapeno mm-hmm. kraut. And so that's when I decided to really, you know, get my business going in earnest. And in February 2009, I rented the space here in Santa Cruz where I am now. Uh, we have a 2,400-square-foot facility, and we just took on another um, uh, chunk of space in the same building because uh, we were expanding so quickly. And uh, so, you know, we, we do nine farmers markets a week. I think we're in well over 200 stores now, and we're kind of moving towards you, Brian. We're in the <laughs> mountains. We're um, just moved into the south. Yeah. Um, uh, that worked out really nicely. But we hope to be in the Midwest um, by February next year. Super cool. Uh, so, uh, you know, there was some sort of discussion about whether or not we wanted to go national. But in the end, I think that's really what we are going to focus on is – Getting reasonably priced trout to a lot of people, uh, and you have to do that through volume. You know, if we wanted, if we had a sustainable business model, we'd be charging like eight or nine dollars a jar. That's mm-hmm. just kind of what you need to charge in order to cover your expenses here in California with our high taxes and high rents and labor and all of that. It's crazy. But we charge six or seven dollars a jar, um, and we lose a little bit of money. But you know, we really want to create an affordable product for people. So. Um, as we start to increase our volume, we're starting to actually see profit, and and that's really where we want to be. We want everybody to have access to to good kraut, and not just people who can afford it. Well, that's super cool. So, how can you keep up with the the demand um, with the produce? Well, that's you know that's a really good question. We we are able to procure green cabbage year round here. Which oh, is it's a huge advantage, yeah. Think about it. And I really am starting to realize that California has the potential to become sort of the next fermentation, fermentation center for the United States um, because we are able to grow cabbage so relatively easily year-round here and mm-hmm. access to all these other vegetables. Uh, we do have some seasonal krauts, like our apple fennel kraut. We just make when apples are available. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that one won't be like on shelves in stores. Uh, so we, we're keeping it also sort of, you know, we've got our farmer's market things where we're able to experiment with new krauts and and really offer seasonal uh, krauts. But stores, you know, we've picked like four krauts that we know we can make year round uh, no matter what. And we work, you know, we work with a lot of small farmers. And recently we um, started working with a farmer who's just uh, consistently providing really beautiful cabbage uh, year-round. He really knows what he's doing. And yeah, that's really cool, having the, the advantage of the, the climate there. Yeah, I mean, how many crops of cabbage do you get there? You get one yeah, or two? Typically two, yeah. Yeah, and kind of they're different cabbage, right? Your spring cabbage is different than your fall cabbage. Absolutely, and then it varies so much by rainfall here. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's amazing once you start working with them to notice, to find how different they are. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, that's a challenge I think for a cold cold weather climate. So it's kind of interesting because traditionally sauerkraut has been something we think of in cold weather climates. Traditionally it's made in the fall to hold you through the fall and the winter and early spring until your garden starts producing again. And uh it's interesting that it might be sort of now shifting to a culture where 
it's not we don't really need that here in California because we have produce year round. Uh, but we have you know because we have produce year round, we can produce it year round. It's kind of interesting. It's yeah. Because in many ways, it's more like a kimchi uh, company than a sauerkraut company. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, and you know, we don't have the the demand or the the present need for uh, this preservation technique since we have refrigeration now. So, <laughs> yeah, everything's a little different. Yeah, and you know, I mean, if we were real purists, we you know we would want to keep these krauts in our root cellars, right, at at uh, earth temperature. In order to do that for several months, you have to create a much saltier product. You're probably aware of that mm-hmm. um, if you're not going to use refrigeration. So, you know, ideally we wouldn't use a whole lot of refrigeration because they take a huge amount of energy. On the other hand, we are, you know, we are able to create a, a, in many ways a healthier product that you don't have to rinse. Um, you know, we use like 1.5% salt. To, if you're wanting to mm, let your barrel of kraut sit in the root cellar, you know, you're going to have to be up around two, two and a half percent salt. Yes. Yep. And I do my, it. I do my short ferments, my krauts, countertop krauts and short term things at 1.5. And then when I do my kimchi or ones I want to age, I b- bump it up around two. Yeah. 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 It's kind of what it's we funny. Do. And I just discovered that kind of just by trial and error. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Great, yeah. Did you have problems with it if you go lower than the one point five? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then um, then this last batch of kimchi from the the very gosh, when was that? <laughs> was it last year? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it lasted uh, well over six months in uh, in the basement. Yeah, wow. No, no problems at all. And this is an old. Uh, this is not a nice environment. This is not a. This is like a cellar, <laughs> you know. It's moldy and yucky and gross down there, and it 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 turned out perfect. And what was the temperature? Oh, uh, it's probably in the net fifty-five somewhere yeah. around there. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And they say here it's at fifty-four inches deep in the ground. You're at fifty-four degrees. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But then you have all the complications with the house and the furnace and whatever is in your basement itself. But Right, right. Yeah, interesting, interesting. <clears throat> you know, something your listeners um, also can check out is sort of the, the definitive work done on the microbiology of sauerkraut is by a gentleman named Carl... Peterson, and I believe it's a P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N. And he's the one who determined for the sauerkraut industry that 64 degrees is the ideal temperature for fermentation, 1.5 to 2% is the ideal salt. And uh, there's a whole paper online that readers can research if you Google USDA and then Carl Peterson sauerkraut paper. And there you can get the document. It kind of lays out all the, the more in-depth sort of analysis of this subject. And um, I, I just think that these scientists really know what they're talking about. Um, yeah. Well, how do you do it there? How do, what's the process that, um, that you do? Well, we, we still make all of our kraut in uh, 57-gallon barrels, um, the plastic FDA-approved, um, I think they're called polypropylene. And, you know, we would love not to do plastic, but... In, when you're making thousands of pounds a week, there's no other way at this point until we move into stainless steel tanks, mm-hmm. which we're looking into. 
and uh, we shred about 300 pounds of cabbage into this container, and um, and then we put a plastic bag, a huge plastic bag, on top of that that um, that kraut, mm-hmm. and then we put a huge, well, actually two plastic bags full of brine inside of that plastic bag. Does that make sense? Yeah, to weight it down, to fill the whole the whole volume there with a, a salt brine inside the bag, right? Yeah, in case the bags leak and we have a double failure, yep. and the liner bag also, for instance, might leak, then we, we put a brine. And it's this the is, same way I do it on the countertop in a mason jar. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, that and, I learned to. Now I have some other th- ways, but yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's even though it's in plastic, it's many ways the most practical way to do it. Uh, the you know, if I were a home maker, I'd probably be using the harsh fermenting crock. Mm-hmm. I love those crocks, uh, and we have some small um, ceramic companies now that are starting to make them here locally, which is kind of neat. Are you familiar with that? That uh, yeah, I have several harsh crocks. Yeah, okay. I love them. Yes. Yeah. I so, do not love lugging them up and down the cellars, the basement stairs, though. I bet. <laughs> Especially full, yeah. I bet. Yeah, but I, I, I you know, the, the idea is to transition into these big stainless steel tanks. But, you know, it's interesting, this water bag method is still used in large, in large facilities uh, around Europe yeah. and the United States. Cool. You know, they'll have like, uh, you know, 50,000 pounds of cabbage in a huge vat, and then they have it lined with plastic and, water, and a water bath on top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes sense, and I love the fact that my small scale operation is a mirror for the big for the big operations. That's yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. I think we could make. I, I'd like to make it a cleaner process, though, without plastic. I would say that's um, that's a goal. I think of most of us in the business, but you know, uh, hopefully, we will have innovative, smart people who come up with plastics that don't harm the planet and don't harm people. Mm-hmm is biopolymers. That's what we're all sort of hoping. Cool. I think for now, um, we can live with the plastics as we're transitioning towards a, a better future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you are going to try to get into stainless steel then? Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. really cool. I know. Same thing with um, like kombucha manufacturers, you know, that try to stay away from plastic, use glass, or stainless steel. So. Yeah, or rocks. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a good idea. I mean, they say that there's no transference uh, with plastic, um, and really, if you you know if you look at the surface of the kraut that's actually touching the plastic out of the 300 pounds, it's probably less than five pounds for the whole barrel is coming mm-hmm. contact. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then we scoop it out and we put it into glass jars. So, um, yeah, maybe I'm worrying about nothing, but I, I'm a purist and I'd like to see the elimination of plastic on our planet completely. Okay, sure. That's because you're a crazy hippie and you just got back from Burning Man. That's <laughs> <laughs> Where, by the way, sauerkraut tastes so good. You wouldn't think that you'd crave sauerkraut out in the desert. Oh, uh, no, yeah. The saltiness, you yeah. know, you get hydrated out there. It's this alkaline, yeah. um, really dehydrated environment. And kraut, you just want to... You just want to suck on the shreds, you know. Just I can feel- picture it, yeah. Because you know what, I did desert racing down in Baja, California, and um, all we would pretty much eat, drink for three days is um, V8 and beer. Oh, interesting. <laughs> that's what we lived on for like it's 111 degrees, and that's what you 
that's all you get. Interesting. Well, the salt, you know, your body just, you've got to yeah. replace the salt yeah. in it. So good. I, I'm thinking some kraut juice would have been good in there. Yeah, that, I was, that was before my uh, kraut making days. I wish I had known. <laughs> We're all about the kraut juice here. We sell it at our farmer's markets for a dollar a shot, $5 a pint. It's Our smoked jalapeno kraut juice is to die for good in a Bloody Mary. Ah, uh, interesting. And yeah. those are horseradish leek kraut juice. And uh, so we, yeah, my <laughs> we have some friends that are mixologists, and uh, kraut juice is kind of a fun new ingredient. Plus, it's so healthy. You know, they used to give it to the, uh, the soldiers in World War II, the Polish, uh, Russians, mm-hmm. uh, and the Germans. I'll give it to the soldiers. Yeah, I say drink the brine all the time. I even just send out random tweets now and then that just tell people to drink the brine. I'm sure they don't know what the hell I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You're right on it. So what's going on out there at uh, Burning Man? Well, you know, there was a really good article that came out a couple of days ago in the Huffington Post about the truth about Burning Man. It's got some really great photographs. Mm -hmm. And it just talks about this... um, this radical self-expression and, and what it does to the psyche. And it's interesting. There are a lot of people in the technical world. You know, mm-hmm. we've got this whole Silicon Valley sort of vibe here. We all, we all tend to work really hard. And uh, although we're not a technologically uh, focused company, we tend to work pretty hard here. Mm-hmm. Hours. And it's the one place that you can go and completely unplug and uh, check in with yourself and, uh, you know, this sort of being able to express yourself in any way you want and then get, getting to look at other people's creative expressions, especially the amazing art installations out there. Uh, it's just, I feel like I'm high the entire time I'm out there and I don't do drugs or drink. So mm-hmm. it's it's like, it's just, it's for me, um, uh, the best vacation of the year. I look forward to it so much every year. It's really cool. It's good to hear that, you know, it has a um, different... Uh, People have a different opinion about it, whether it's, you know, corporatized or has jumped the shark or whatever you want to, whatever term you want to use, you know? Yeah. But, I'm sure it's shifted from its early days, but it's still very non-commercial. Have you been there? No, that's way outside my, <laughs> outside my world. I don't think you'll find me there. <laughs> you know, it took me 10 years of my friends saying, you know, I think you really would like it out there, Catherine. And I uh-huh. said, oh, no, that's not my thing. I'm not really a party girl. I right. You know, I'm I'm usually in my kitchen, and I like I like having you know small parties at home, you know, with friends and family and that sort of thing. I'm not I don't really go out that much, and and so everybody was kind of shocked the year I got the uh, courage up to go, and now I don't miss it. Um, so it's it's um yeah, it's surprising surprising who you encounter out there, and and uh, I think people are always surprised that I go because I seem so conservative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it holds I. We can hold out some hope. Maybe someday I'll I'll make a I'll show up, but not likely. You know, we only go for a couple of days, three days actually. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could do the whole week. Yeah, a week's a long time. Yeah, there's some interesting characters out there. A lot of people that run big corporations in Silicon Valley are out there doing the you know doing the same thing. So it's it's kind of interesting the way it's evolved. Absolutely, I love. Yeah, I used to go to a. Um, the Maker's Fair in San Mateo. Have you ever same, heard of that? Same crowd. Yeah, same, exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. My my partner is really into to that kind of stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He's into solar and uh, and into electric cars and into sort of radical um, 
what does he call it? Radical independence, you know, when it comes to unplugging from the system and making, um, making really cool t- uh, tools for our lives that, that don't need um, a lot of inputs yeah. from, the, from the outer world. And so he's, even for like Burning Man, he creates this really, way, really cool way to recycle water from the coolers. Um, you know, we're, we're always melting a lot of, you know, we lose a lot of water. He turns that cool water into a mist that he uh, solar powers and it goes through pantyhose and then <laughs> as a filter and then it mists on us while we're there. So we're always nice and cool. Nice. That's air conditioning. And I have a feeling he might have even sort of gotten that idea at the Maker's Fair. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah, that's the one, probably one of the largest regrets I have for leaving San Mateo was uh, missing the Maker's Fair now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just got to plan on coming out about that time of year. Yeah, well, I'd probably go to the Fermentation Festival. Yeah. That'd be my choice. That's that's where you are now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, coming up this weekend is the Eat Real Festival. Um, Have you heard about that in Oakland? Eat Real, no. Oh my gosh, check it out. 100,000 people showed up last year. I think it's the third year. Um, and all these really great Bay Area food makers are there. Uh, and a lot of all the food trucks. And, uh, and then they have people like us, you know, and kind of like the cheese makers, the kraut makers, the butchers, the, you know, candle mm-hmm. makers. And uh, we all have, um, you know, kind of our, our own thing going on there. We... I think that I think the rule is you can't sell you like if you're selling prepared food you can, it can't be for more than five dollars. Mm-hmm. So it, they keep the prices really great, but then they have these workshops and, and stages all around, and they've got like a butcher breaking down a whole beast, and you know, and showing people how to do it. And this year, Todd Champagne, who owns uh, along with his wife uh, Jordan Happy Girl Kitchen Company, we started teaching something called a crowdathon three years ago and it's evolved into this sort of big ruckus affair um and this year we get to be on the main stage and what we're doing is um uh we have enough stations set up where a hundred people can be making kraut all at once (laughs) in in our in the dance so to speak and the um, and then we've got space for like another two hundred people to show up around the sidelines and and view, and we're we, we're hoping we might even break a you know a Guinness World Record. I mean, we want yeah. as many people together, you know, collectively making kraut. And uh-huh. <laughs> it's kind of got the big sir hippie thing going. He's a lot more casual about making kraut, and I'm you know I'm kind of got the German sort of everything's got to be exact and measured All and. Right. And, uh, you know, and so we have a lot of fun. We, we kind of do the Laurel and Hardy crouch stick together. And, and so that's coming up this Saturday. We're teaching that from uh, 1230 to 130, the crowd thon and um, lots of fun sort of classes like that at this. this so, so if you come out, you know, the eat, the farm to fermentation festival is this past weekend. And then the next weekend is the eat real. And you, you would, I think you'd really enjoy the eat real. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah. What city is the eat real festival in? Exactly. I'm sorry. Oakland, it's Jack London's. Oh, Oakland, okay. I take over that entire waterfront. Wow, that's super. That that's really cool. Yeah, yeah I'll definitely look into that and put um, okay. the link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I've enjoyed talking to you, Brian. To um, talk about um, 
how people can find your product and links and things like that, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, the best thing to do is to go to our website. We've integrated a new Google map where you can put in your zip code, and then it'll take you to the nearest store. Oh, nice. And uh, so that's, yeah, that, that we, we're not in Ohio yet, but hope to be soon. Where's most of your listener base? So all uh, Scattered, over. yeah, all over. All over the globe. All 38 of them. <laughs> I don't have any accurate tracking, but they are a scattered bunch, they are. Uh, yeah, well, good, good. Well, I really like your show. I'm, I'm glad we found each other. Thanks. And, yeah, you know, it's... I'm glad that you're going national. I'm pro-local food, you know, and anti-corporate food. But I have found a, cu- a few really excellent uh, national brands. So I'm kind of I'm kind of easing back a bit, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's really so. Like, there's this a seafood company, uh, Wild Planet. They have canned sardines and things, and. Uh, the product is outstanding, you know, and so for something like that, I'm like, yeah, you know what? These people are doing it right. It's a uh, wild caught off the shores, you know, off the coast of California, and yeah. you're making a superior product that is is done with good intentions. It's done the right way. It's honoring, you know, the ancient cultural way of making the food. So, yeah, and I think that really is sort of the trick, and um, is researching the companies you're doing business with if you are going to do business with a national company and. And making sure that they're focused on like the triple P, right? The people, planet, profit, bottom line, not just about money and shareholder earnings. And um, that's what I love about the internet is it's making all that transparent and the industrial food system won't be able to rely on the ignorance of its customer base much longer. Wow. That was brilliant. That was awesome. (laughs) Very cool. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of cool where technology and and then old traditional foods sort of intersect. I think it's where a lot of small companies have have a real opportunity to shine. All right, Catherine, I'm gonna let you get back to work. That's it for today. That's good. Maybe we'll talk again in the future. I hope I to see like- you out at one of these events. Yeah, please contact me if you ever come out. I'd love to I'd love to meet you. All right. All right, Brian. Take bye care. Now. Okay. Bye. bye. Here is a clip from NeedHelpParenting.com. The following audio clip will conclude this episode. Go to AskBrian.com for all the delights this world has to offer. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm James Lehman, creator of the Total Transformation Program, and here is this month's One Minute Transformation. Use task-oriented consequences. There's two parts to this. The first is, I want you to take some time to write up a list of the things your child enjoys doing, the things he likes doing, the things he finds rewarding, or things that you can do that you know he'll find rewarding, or that you think he might find rewarding. Then draw up a list of the things that he doesn't like to do, and the things that are not rewarding, but that are types of consequences. You know, losing time on computer, not being able to use the phone, losing the cell phone, all these kinds of things. So when you sit down with your child 
and you have to reward them or give them consequences, you have a pretty good idea of what they like and what they don't like. And by the way, you know, if you have trouble with a list like what they like, you know, include them in a discussion. What's the things you like? You know, so you have a menu of rewards that you can pick from. But the other thing is too many parents teach their kids how to do time and not how to change behavior. And that's part of the problem is that if you ground the kid for a week or you take something away for three hours, you're just teaching them to do that time. You're not teaching them to change their behavior. So that's not a consequence. That's like a punishment, all right? And so parents have to give true consequences, which is the natural outcome of a behavior. And so if you're disrespectful or abusive to your sister, you don't go to your room. You go to your room until you write her a letter of apology, and you come up with what you're going to do for her to make it better. If you lie about your homework, you don't just go to your room. You go write a letter or a paragraph on why it's important not to lie, you know, not to get over punitive with it, but just to focus on the importance of trust or the importance of not lying. And so what you do is if the kid doesn't write the letter, then he doesn't come out of his room. If he writes the letter in half an hour, then he comes out of his room. Then he has to read it to you. And certainly, you know, you can process it with them, question it, send them back for more. But that way, the kid is learning how to solve the problem. And task-oriented consequences are designed to help you learn how to solve the problem. The speeding ticket that I get is designed to help me learn how to drive slower. That's the whole idea. If I don't want another one, I have to drive slower. What we want kids to do is to learn the lesson. The lesson is how to solve your problems differently. And the way we do that is through a reward list and a consequence list and focus on problem-solving skills. I hope you found this month's One Minute Transformation to be helpful. You can get help for the full range of child behavioral problems and a step-by-step plan for changing your child's behavior in the total transformation. I'll help you stop the defiance, screaming, and disrespect and help you bring peace and sanity back into your home. To learn more about the total transformation, visit our website at needhelpparenting.com.